I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. Come along with us on an adventure in the book of Judges. Welcome Welcome to to the the club, club, the Bible book club. In chapters two and the beginning of chapter three, we learned that God had sent an angel up from Gilgal to remind the Israelites of the plan and to challenge them on their disobedience, which is becoming a problem. And they apparently got the message because they were weeping. Then we discussed the overview that the author provided of what will happen in the rest of the book of Judges. And that is summed up in this verse, verse 10. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what the Lord had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. This phrase will become the bane of the Israelites' existence. The episode ended with a list of the nations left to test Israel's obedience to God. All right, here's the setup for keeping the 12 judges straight in your head. Now that we are through both the military and spiritual introductions to judges, because, you know, we had two introductions. It was a little, it was a lot. So let's talk about these different judges themselves before we launch into the first three we have a chart, a tool for you. Now, if you are new to the book of Judges and would like to keep these 12 straight, you can look this up in the show notes. It helped me a lot because you hear about them randomly in stories throughout the Bible, but you don't realize that there were 12 together and there was an order to them. Um, And there were different things that uh, we got information about each of them about. So there were major and minor judges, six of each, And it is thought that each tribe was represented in the 12. Now, we had to guess on a few 12s because not all of the judges are given an exact location. But it seems likely that these 12 judges are highlighted to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, every tribe had a good guy. (laughs) The only two tribes not directly linked are Simeon and Asher. And Simeon, we know from Joshua, was spread out in cities located in Judah and therefore would have been absorbed into the southern tribes fairly quickly. Now, if any judge were from Simeon, it could be Ibsen, who was a minor judge from Bethlehem. That leaves Asher as the only other one that's kind of left out. Now, Deborah lived with her husband in Ephraim, but it is possible that she, like Anna the prophet in Luke 2.36, was from nearby Asher and not from Ephraim. The other thing we're going to put into this chart that was kind of interesting is the weapon that each judge used to save Israel, the enemy that they fought, because remember, we just ended that last section with a list of the, the enemies that were left in Canaan to cause trouble. It's also going to list, the chart will list the years of oppression that the judge ended, you know, because the people are going to cry out to the Lord and the Lord's going to give them somebody to save them, a judge, and then it's going to end that oppression. And then they're going to live in peace a certain number of years with this judge over them. So all those things are in the chart. It's fun to look at. So I need to go look at this chart because I love charts, but I have a question about this. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're saying then that because each of these judges represent a different tribe, are these judges all serving concurrently? like around the same time? No. And there is some discussion in the book of Judges 
they are kind of written after Ehud, you know, died, someone took over. There are a couple that the commentaries like Shamgar that they think might be just inserted, but it is sequential. So it is sequential. So if each judge represents a tribe, then... They weren't just leading their own tribe in most cases. They were leading all of Israel. They were leading all of Israel. But, you know, God always seems to be repeating this um, representation of the 12 tribes and everything he does. And they do think that there was a judge represented from each tribe. Now, remember, we think of judges as someone who sits in a black robe and makes decisions. And certainly the prophetess uh, Deborah was a little bit like that. But mostly these judges were people that um, God provided to the nation to pull them out of oppression because they had lost their way. Yeah, because the Israelites were different than all of the communities around them or the people around them because those people had kings and they didn't have a king. So this was kind of like the replacement of a king for them. This was their leader who came after Joshua. So there wasn't just one. There was he God would deliver them through a leader at the time. All right. One other note overall, to save Israel from the spiral of sin, God uses all types of people with only one thing in common, a heart for the Lord. We're going to see that God will use a left-handed, possibly handicapped judge, a female judge, a non-Israelite judge, and judges from some of the smallest and weakest tribes. So all kinds of people, which I love that. And we left off with these words from chapter 3-5. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. So the two big points are here are the intermarriage and serving their gods and so the sinning begins. The Israelites not only lived among the Canaanites, they married them and they served their gods. Here's our first judge, Othniel, the one who was a paragon. He is the gold standard of judges. Now, Othniel is a fitting choice as the first judge for several reasons. He provides a link to the book of Joshua, where we first met Othniel in chapter 15. Othniel had a personal relationship with the only two OGs allowed to live in the promised land. He was the brother and son-in-law of Caleb, and Caleb was Joshua's faithful partner. So we can assume they knew each other well, too, because actually Othniel served in the army. Othniel is also the one judge from the tribe of Judah. This tribe, above all others, needs to set a good example and usually does. Lastly, in contrast to the Israelites who took Canaanite wives, like we just read, Othniel married Caleb's daughter, a godly woman named Aksa, when we talked about her. So while the Canaanite wives led their husbands astray, as Delilah will also in a few episodes, Aksa was an asset to Othniel and even increased their land holdings by being really sharp and asking her father for more. Othniel's role in the book of Judges and in history is to be the judge by which all other judges will be evaluated and found wanting. His story is the only portrayal that lacks anything negative. It is ironic that Othniel, the judge with the best character, is often unknown to all of us, while the judge with the worst character, Samson, is very well known. 
From here on, each judge's story will be a step down from Othniel's example. So keep that in mind. All right. Chapter three continued from last episode. Verse seven. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of the Cushan-Rathaim king of Aram Narim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rahathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. This is cycle one, the first cycle of sin that begins with that phrase, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The pattern for all the major judges and cycles always begins with this phrase. Now for clarification, there will only be six cycles that begin with this phrase that introduce the six major judges. The other six minor judges don't have much of a story, in fact, just sometimes two sentences, and don't have the phrase as an introduction. And it's curious that that is such a short uh, part of the story, but you said that he was the best judge. Well, he is covered already once in Judges and in Joshua. So we kind of know his story by now. And I think that's why they do introduce him quickly. Like, okay, remember Othniel? He did it right. All right. What did the Israelites do here? They forgot the Lord rather quickly, in fact, because Joshua is only recently gone and Othniel is still alive and young enough to lead for 40 more years. So he was must have been a way younger brother than Caleb. And, you know, he did marry his niece, which we won't go into, but they did that back then. Anyway, it's no wonder that the anger of the Lord burned because the generation turned so quickly. So whom did they serve? The Israelites served the Baals and the Asherahs. Asherah is not to be confused with Astart from Judges 2, Episode 2. Asherah was one of the great goddesses of the Canaanites. In the Canaanite religion, her primary role was that of mother goddess. Now, the Canaanites associated Asherah with sacred trees, and the Israelites adopted this association. She was usually represented as an upright wooden pole, kind of like a tree. Asherah poles will be a common occurrence in Judges 6 and throughout 1st and 2nd Kings. The Israelites repeatedly make the poles and then are commanded to tear them down. The poles are often found next to an altar to Baal, and so they are associated with him also. All right, who oppressed the Israelites? It says God sold them into the hands of Cushan Rashaim, king of Aram Naharim. The king of Aram is identified with Mesopotamia in the region northeast of the promised land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and he oppressed them for eight years. Then the Israelites cry out to the Lord. However, the commentaries vary in their opinion of what this cry implies. Some believe it was a cry for rescue, but not a cry of repentance. And others believe that it was truly a cry of repentance. But if you're one of those people who believes that to truly repent, you have to turn from your ways. Well, then it wasn't a cry of repentance because 
they're going to turn around and do the same thing shortly. In either case, God was merciful to save them over and over again. So how did God save them this time? He raised up a deliverer, Othniel. And it says that the spirit of the Lord came upon him as it will with three of our other judges, Gideon, Japheth, and Samson. Othniel became a judge and went to war for Israel. The Lord gave the king of Aram into Othniel's hands. Nothing new here. This is exactly how God worked with Joshua and Caleb. God gave them a leader. They obeyed and went to war. Then God gave them victory, all as well as it should be here with Othniel. And Israel had peace under him for 40 years. In none of the other five cycles is God's involvement so explicitly stated at every stage in this cycle. Othniel sets the bar high as God's standard for a judge and deliverer. Okay, now that was very serious because Othniel is the, the paragon. However, moving into Ehead, the second judge, we have the one who was handicapped. The story of Ehud is a satire filled with irony. It should be a play, really. The author has a sense of humor, and it almost sounds like a different author to me because he's so straightforward with Othniel, and then all of a sudden with Ehud, he's like kicking in these little zingers all the time. And God allows it. So I'm hoping God has a sense of humor, too. Well, God invented sense of humor, so he does. I know, exactly. This episode is clearly written, though, by men, for men, because it's centers around potty talk. And I'm serious about that. But but I will say this, the last humorous story we discussed, the last one that I remember was season four, episode 12, the blind seer and the wise ass from numbers 22. Um, and I think that one was probably for women. And I'm not going to elaborate why you'll have to go back and listen. Now in this story, Ehud wins the day in a most unusual way. Do you remember that story? Do you want to say anything about that? Why do you think it was from women? Or only I probably I mean, remember. I remember the story. It was the donkey, the talking donkey, and he kept kicking the donkey. Well, but I don't remember why it was women. Well, I don't know. Okay, I probably shouldn't say this. I'm going to get in trouble. Buck may have to edit out. But I just keep thinking, you know, he was a seer. He was supposed to see, but he was blind. And sometimes I just feel like... My husband, my son's, maybe not everybody's, but they'll open the fridge and they'll go, where's the milk? Didn't you get milk? And they're staring right at the milk. Yeah, I think um, all kids do that regardless of gender. Okay. (laughs) My girls didn't do it. Only the males in my family can be looking at something and asking where it is. Oh, our producer is agreeing with me. So anyway, I just thought of that one as maybe being written humorously for women because he's like literally not seeing even though he's a seer. Okay. Anyway, back to Ehud. This is in cycle two of the Israelites who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. All right, so what did the Israelites do, and who did they serve in this cycle of sin? It does not say what evil the Israelites did, but since it was, quote, in the eyes of the Lord, we can assume they broke the covenant to serve God wholeheartedly. So who oppressed them? 
Eglon, the king of Moab, along with his allies, the Ammonites and Amalekites. Now, the last time the Moabites tried to conquer Israel was included in the Blind Seer and Wise Ass episode that I already mentioned. The Moabites failed in that attempt because God protected the Israelites. In this case, God did the opposite. He gave the Moabites power over the Israelites because they had sinned. Now, the Moabites took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. Now, that is an arresting thought. Does this imply that the work of Joshua is already being undone? Yes, it does. Because if you'll remember, Jericho was their first conquest in the promised land. Now, the time of oppression in this cycle increased from eight years under King Aram and Othniel to 18 years of oppression. Verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. All right. How did God save them? Once again, the Israelites cry out to the Lord, whether in pain or repentance, we do not know. Either way, God is merciful to save them. He gave them a deliverer, Ehud, from the tribe of Benjamin, a left-handed man. Now, why is this important to know? Because I don't think we've had any discussions about whether you're right or left-handed to date. But the literal translation of Judges 3.15 is that Ehud was, quote, unable to use his right hand or was quote, a man restricted in his right hand, implying that Ehud may have been handicapped. However, when we hit Judges 20, there will be a whole division of soldiers who were left-handed that are described in the same way, who are also from the tribe of Benjamin. So perhaps he wasn't handicapped, but only thought of as handicapped because most ancient cultures viewed left-handedness negatively because it was not the norm and it put people at a disadvantage. I guess they didn't have left-handed scissors back then. I don't know. Now, this is crazy. In the Hebrew text, the word Benjamin means son of the right hand. And the phrase restricted in his right hand, these two phrases appear in succession. So it should be read like this. Ehud, the son of the right hand, a man restricted in his right hand. Tons of ironies in this author's story. Whether Ehud had a handicapped right hand or was just considered handicapped because he was left-handed, we do not know. What we do know is that God is going to use Ehud despite his handicap and that God uses other judges going forward who are marginal in some sense. And that this author enjoyed going crazy with the irony of this story. Verse 17, the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. All right, lots of little details there. Ehud, we will find, was creative as well as courageous. And opportunity finds Ehud suddenly when he is asked to take a tribute or gift to the king. We don't know how he came to be chosen. Perhaps he was already a military leader and he was just being sent on a diplomatic errand. Or perhaps they knew that if anyone could get more out of this trip, he could. Because remember, they're being oppressed by these people, the Moabs. Now, info on Eglon, the king of Moab, was a Bible bender for me. 
The phrase presented the tribute used in this passage is a combination of words that is only used elsewhere in the Old Testament in reference to grain offerings presented to God. So if you listen to season three of Leviticus, you would know that a grain offering was often accompanied by a burnt or sin offering. And these two offerings involved the sacrifice of an animal, often a bull. And the meaning of the name Eglon or Eglon is, well, bull with a diminutive ending, meaning little calf. And the word interpreted as fat in the NIV that we just read in Hebrew is used only in the description of animals as fat or meaty. In other words, altogether, the name suggests that Eglon was a fatted calf ready for slaughter. Ehud has brought the grain offering and Eglon will be the other offering. Ehud is so creative. He has been thinking about this. And his heart is for the Lord. He is making a sacrifice in his own way. And truly, he was almost sacrificing himself because this is a solo venture. And he knows he's either going to accomplish something secret and creative that only he has probably in his head, or he's probably going to die. So before he leaves, Ehud plots out his solo plan and he prepares his instrument for the slaughter. A short double-edged sword, probably about 12 to 18 inches long. Verse 18. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Okay, so again, these slight little hints we're getting here. Ehud gets as far as Gilgal. Okay, why did we need to know that? Well, we know this town well. This is from whence the angel came in the last episode. The place that is a reminder to all as the place the Lord met Joshua on the way to Jericho and told him that the battle and city were already theirs. It's almost like he gets to Gilgal and he's remembering, oh, the Lord met Joshua here. The Lord's going to meet me too. This is the place where the generation, that second generation was circumcised and celebrated the first Passover in the promised land. And Ehud was probably part of that group. And what is there at Gilgal? Stones, it says now. Stones. Now, this word for stone is pathel, meaning idols or images. These are not the 12 stones that were set up by Joshua when they crossed the Jordan River. So he, if you can get in Ehud's head, he's going back with everybody. He's got his plan. He hits those stones and he's like, this is not theirs. This is where God stood on this sacred ground with Joshua that we've got to take it back. And Ehud uses this as his excuse to go back. He pretends that he has received a message from the gods, not the God, when he got to the stone. So he hits the stones, he says, I'm going back and I have a secret. Now, when he hits the palace, he tells King Eglon that he has a message. And here's where this left-handedness is going to come into play. So track with me. 
Now, the king is not very smart. Or maybe he was just thinking that Ehud was not a risk because he's left-handed. You know, they don't, they, they, or maybe they don't know he's left-handed. We don't know. But here's why he's not very smart. If Ehud had been fleeced for weapons when he came into the palace, they would have most likely checked his left side. Right-handed warriors would keep their weapons on the left side to easily reach across and pull them out with their right hand. Now, because of Ehud's rank, the king's men and the king probably assumed he was a great warrior and therefore they had checked his left side, thinking he was right-handed. And so they probably didn't check where the weapon was because being left-handed, the knife was on the wrong side and went undetected. So that's how the commentaries think he got in with the weapon. Eglon assumes that Ehud is not a risk, so he dismisses everyone to get his juicy message from, he assumes, his gods. Now, Ehud is about to turn this perceived disadvantage into a surprise advantage. And I want you to note, I think God delights in doing this. So the question for us is, how can God turn your perceived disadvantages into a surprise advantage with others? Verse 20, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors to the upper room locked. They said, He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen on the floor dead. So Ehud approaches the king in an upper room of the palace. And he mentions the message he has for a second time. But this time Ehud reveals that the message is from God, not the gods. It is from the one true God. Now, Egon probably didn't like that. And that's why the overlarge king probably rose from his seat. It might have been in protest. And here our author delights in his hidden humor. Because when the term seat is usually used in conjunction with a king, it usually means his throne. However, In light of the servant's statement that the king must be relieving himself, the seat to which the author is referring is a pun. For another seat, it is believed this indulgent king sat on regularly. So is this where that comes from? How sometimes we call the toilet the throne, like sitting on the throne? Is it from this story? (laughs) I I don't know. The commentaries speculate that the weight of the king had caused major bowel problems on a regular basis and that the servants were used to him spending time in the toilet room. Ehud does not hesitate and makes his surprised left-handed attack. The king's belly rolls swallowed the sword, handle, and all. And then the king's bowels discharge. Yes. Gross. Potty talk here. The word used for bowels discharge is haparasidona. 
The ESV version interprets it as the dung came out. The New American Standard says the refuse came out. And the King James says the entrails. And there you go. With entrails, we spiral out on the whole sacrificial bull analogy because the entrails were to be removed when they sacrificed the bull. So, Again, you've got potty talk. You've got talk of sacrifices. This guy had a feed, field day with the story. I love it. This is a crazy story that I almost can't even believe is in the Bible. I know because it is so funny. It must have also been pretty I don't gross. Know about funny. It's really, yeah, it's really gross. gross. It's really gross. Now we can't blame Ehud for making a quick escape. As Ehud exits stage right, the servants try to enter stage left. Apparently, the smell that met them was recognizable to the servants. And they're outside the door because the door is locked. So they wait and wait to the point of embarrassment. Like they were embarrassed for him for being in there. Yeah, like it was so funny. The commentaries on this, like some of them, the commentaries are spiraling out going, so can you can you imagine the jokes that they were saying out there? (laughs) You know, I mean, they're just out there waiting and waiting and it smells bad and they're holding their noses and they're like, oh, my gosh. But it gives Ehud a a good long chance to escape and Eglon time to die. Surely the author is having fun at the expense of the king, for he could not have known if the servants were embarrassed. But the stories around the Israelite army campfire that night must have just fueled this author's imagination. Like they must have joked about this forever, actually. (laughs) We're still reading about it. All right, let's keep going in verse 26. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, but not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. So Ehud passes those stone idols again, having a good laugh at the false gods that those idols represented. Then he rallied the troops and struck down 10,000 Moabites. Moab is now subject to Israel instead of vice versa. And peace resumes this time for 80 years, a good long time. Now, remember this story because it's just such a great example of how God uses the unusual. And in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul points out that God tends to use people who are weaker socially, physically, and even morally so that none can boast even today. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Four, consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the insignificant things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that were not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no human may boast before God. Ehud is 
our first example of one who is thought of as lesser than others, but inspired creatively and empowered courageously to save his people. And I do love that he was inspired to come up with a creative idea. Like he he had heard about this king or maybe even seen them and came up with that sword and and then knew how he was going to get in. He was he was a, he was very resourceful. Yeah. All right. The third judge for today. This is Shamgar, the cattle prod killer. Verse 31. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat. He too saved Israel. All right. Minor judge who did major things. So how did God save Israel this time? And from whom? Shamgar was a minor judge, our first minor judge. And that's why we don't have a cycle with that phrase, the bane of their existence. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, But he did do something major. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat, which is a cattle prod. The fact that he used such a strange weapon, which really isn't a weapon, implied that he was not a professional. And he makes the Philistines look totally inept. Like, how did he kill 600 people with just this this farming tool? Ehud was creative and cunning. Shamgar, in comparison, appears to rely on brute strength and endurance. Like, he just went at it. Um, There also could be a little pun in this short little narrative. Ox goad, the word, comes from the word learn or an instrument of learning. Thus, the play on words is that Shamgar teaches the Philistines a thing or two, or 600. And like Eglon, they got the point of the lesson. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is a funny author. Okay, Shamgar is mentioned in the Song of Judges in chapter five as a notable man. So even though we only got two sentences on him here, um, he was notable. And his father's name, Anath, is the only link to a possible tribe, which would have been in the region of Naphtali. So he's kind of attributed to that tribe. However, this same name, Anath, may also imply that he was not an Israelite. So this is what makes him unusual. The name Anath is a Hurrian name coming from Mesopotamia or Egypt. The fact that his name is linked with Jael, a non-Israelite in the song in chapter five, we're going to get to her next episode, may also be another indicator that he was not born an Israelite. So in this case, God chose to use a deliverer who was a non-Israelite. That is all we know about this little judge number three. Now, in the next episode, God's going to use two women to save Israel. Deborah, who gets the war going, and Jael, who brings it to a gory end. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club! New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.